My name's uh, Jeremy Walker. I'm a composer and a pianist, 50 years old. Uh, but this is not a podcast about music. It's not a podcast about me. It happens to be about my dad. His name's Tom Walker. Uh, he started his own company when he was 22 years old. He was started as an accountant. He expanded into small business consulting, uh, negotiations, everything that goes along with that. Um, for the past 30 plus years, he's devoted himself to trying to answer for how small independent businesses run by iconoclastic people, not deliberately so, but by their nature, can survive and thrive outside of what he would call the crushing conformity of uh, our time and our economy. Uh, I heard about this stuff all the time when I was a kid, and I wasn't particularly interested in business, and frankly, I'm still not, but he is a passionate, provocative, uh, difficult, committed person, and uh, he's written a book called The Thirty Years' War, but that doesn't begin to capture the energy and uh, the spirit of what he's talking about, so I decided, well, let's do a podcast about this, and I never really wanted to talk about it, but we're going to, and that's what the podcast is called. It's called, Do We Really Have to Talk About This? And the answer is yes. Well, we're going to talk about a story that's familiar to me that goes a ways back, and a story about an underdog, really, um, and uh, overcoming what would seem to be... Uh, insurmountable uh, uh, environmental antagonism and uh, I'll let Tom Walker take it from there well it's an interesting story in fact it's a story that spans this man's whole career Uh, the name of the man is Bill we did this thing he had no business experience no college degree and in fact was not well spoken He was not a classic entrepreneur because, in fact, he was not a risk-taker. The time was 1980. It was no time to do a foundry startup. Foundries in the United States were said to be dead. Later, he would endure production interference from his CFO, loan calls from his lender. When you say foundry, you're talking about uh, casting? Yeah. Yeah. So an old thousand-year-old process or whatever. Well, it's, 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 boy, it's longer, more than a thousand years old. It's at least 5,000 years old. It's changed a bit. Well, sure. Did he do sand casting or was it, uh, what is it called, lost wax? Called lost wax. Okay. Yes. Go ahead. I was just curious. So in any case, uh, uh, he endured uh, inter- production interference from his CFO, loan calls, and pricing that was referenced or tied or driven by cost. And finally, a growing disrespect for his manner and methods, which resulted and had a negative impact on his irascible humor. He is a classic contrast, though, between the efficiency of so-called unworkable, indefinite, irrational style of management and the best models of business management, which, say, one might find out of Harvard Business School. The choice of management is his unproven, uncertain, risky approach versus the opposite. It is a matter of what is considered to be high risk 
as opposed to what is considered to be highly safe. While not necessarily so, that is those risk parameters, it is the common perception. I had asked him if he had thought about starting his own business, I suppose, though I didn't think so at the time that my question, which I asked twice, might have taken his, him as a, by him as a sign of my appraisal of his capabilities. Reflecting now, some 40 years later, probably it was. I was aware his foundry experience included production, quality control, and most recently sales. He was tested, later to be tested, by a plan formed by his own views of such things. I'll unfold his story for this was my firm's beginning and a form of planning that was model-based, was not budgetary, though we were CPAs, and the approach was to bury our own supposed expertise even if that expertise was sought. I had fixed the fee, I had made it dependent on the success of his getting funded, and paid if he became profitable. By our models, we, by analogy, supplied paint, brushes, canvas, and he supplied the vision, and our canvas, which I would call the models, to put it in a business language for his assessment of risk and for the persuasion of other parties. This was a startup that broke the rules. It was an industry I already said was dying in the United States, or said to be dying. At the time, again, 1980, about 1980, the prime rate was 20%, a rate that is said to be impossible to support. This was the first time I had applied, though not as conversantly as I hope I can today, um, an aspect of economic savvy. That is, what is the right time to buy or build, and the right time to walk away? This is no easy question as commonly, for example, houses are bought largely on the size of payment, and businesses invest when lenders are motivated. At 3% versus 7.5% the payment, a payment of 2500 versus 4100 on a $600,000 house. It's a big difference. The subtlety is the price of the house is the matter that has played out inversely for Bill in the price which he paid for equipping this new business. Applied to his startup, the purchase price was about $250,000 on an estimated market value or price before this uh, prime rate of 20%. Estimated value of about a million dollars, so about an 80% discount, 75-80% discount from market. And the client, as already noted, was no business manager, so that's the argument to start. It was also where he was to show his, not ours, or anyone else's ability. He, not me, would make the presentations to funding sources. He didn't like that. Meeting alone, and after doing so, he thought he'd done a poor job. Yet one of the sources called me wanting to do this deal. He was impressed by Bill. Interesting, so was I. After the year I spent preparing his plans or assisting him in preparing his plans, when he presented it, it was clear to the funding source that Bill knew his stuff. And that's the deciding point. It was cumulative within six months of startup and as interest rates dropped, naturally he became more profitable. It happened they employed a costing system as is customary and regularly checked the jobs for that costing system. 
Maybe it was three years after the startup, the CFO reported that they were losing money on their largest job, and thus prices had to be raised, and this job was their most important customer. He urged, I may say demanded, that Bill raise the price. Math and reality were clear, irrefutable, and compelling. Bill refused. What he did is he went to work to change the manufacturing process, which in result repaired the, lo- repaired the losses. If we can, but let's back up a bit because this, we're, what, year three this is on the pricing thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Bill is starts this thing, what is he, 44, 45? 41 maybe. Okay, 41 years old, 19, 20% interest rates. Yeah. Which I, rem- I remember making 10% of my little teenager savings account mm. at that time. Yeah. Which, for reference, I don't think there is such a thing as a... There is now. now. You know, yeah. it, uh, 10% is... Yeah, there were T-bills at 12% at the time. <laughs> yeah. Wow. You know. But he gets roughly an 80% in quotes discount on inputs. Yes. Okay. And his cost of equipment. And what was he doing before? What was his... Before he started the company? Yeah. He was selling foundry parts. Okay. Yeah. He'd been involved in foundries for about two decades, manufacturing, uh, production rather, uh, quality control, and then finally in sales. Okay. So he had significant foundry background. Mm-hmm. Okay. And he knew how to talk to people about it. Well, apparently, yes. I, I, the reason I interrupt and I don't want to necessarily run ahead is the, the startup thing. There's a uh, an interesting uh, fingertip level ability to build. I, I, or to, well, to, you need to go to school, obviously, for foundry parts sales. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's a subject that is worth, um, uh, in fact, it'll be a separate, a separate subject because it's, it's a question of what is the nature of that knowledge, how does he get it, and how does it happen to turn into sort of the insight to know how to fix a problem. Uh, a friend of mine has 20-some patents brilliant German fellow and I asked him one day I said how did you get so many patents why did you address those things how does it happen and he said well finally I get so mad I decide I have to fix it (laughs) that doesn't answer it but uh, well it's sufficient I just Bill had knowledge of the industry he knew people in the industry he obviously had some interest in the process well, he had, you know, he was 40, is how he provided for his family. As I remember. Um, and he was, uh, yeah. In the presentations, now this story goes back to my youth. Uh, as I remember, he researched uh, the historical, or the, the background of casting, sand casting, lost wax casting. Now it's kind of ringing a bell as we talk about it now. Well, that was that was all became part of the uh, of the plan, if you will, the presentation materials. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Was it private investors or it was bank loan, SBA or this? This turned turned out to be SBA. Okay. Uh, Stan Gove, who, uh, yeah. In fact, uh, Stan was so impressed. He he said, "Can you find more of these?" I I, I said, "It's not so easy." 
Yeah. You know. Stop it. So what I'm curious about is he, he starts this business for the usual reasons. He would needs to make a living. He has reached a point in his career where he wants to do something else, whatever it is, a broad interest in the industry. He can sell, obviously, because if he was out selling parts and all that, he knew how to do that. <coughs> you know, the, the, the usual reasons are ones that are not usually spoken of. Uh, in, well, what did you see that you in, said? In an indefinite sense, guys who do this sort of things aren't doing this to accept a risk. They're doing it because they look forward to their life. Say, and Billy was about 40 at the time. All he saw was risk, and he saw this as a way to reduce risk. Well, I think that's an important point. Well, it's a very important point, critical point. And I, but I can't get all the points in one. We're not trying to get all the points. But that, <laughs> That, but that's an interesting, and, and I should say this, we'll, we'll talk about this several more times so that we can be as circular as we want. But that issue of seeing risk differently, my interest in it is, is uh, I'm an improvising musician. So business and uh, business as a specific topic isn't my interest, but the general things that I guess I grew up with hearing about crept into how I see things. I'm not convinced that there's a substantive difference between the creative, inventive discovery process of being a musician or a composer and being a foundry owner. Well, I'm not. I, that's and, a point and, of and, Yeah, and and the nature of that knowledge, how we arrive at that, how that plays out, is interesting. So what I'm talking about, as you say, he looks forward and it's, as a way to mitigate risk, he does something that to a large percentage of people they see as inherently risky. Well, I think that's so, but there's another key to that. Um, you know, um, in order to accept that proposition, a couple of things had to be true, and that's the, the planning part was where he could work through to his own satisfaction the nature of those risks and whether those risks were acceptable. That's what happens in the plan. Mm -hmm. I mean, it may create certain reports that go to the lenders and da da da, but they're really a substantive part. And the reason you keep the experts out of that is so he can test to his own standards and judgment as what what is risk and what is the risk he can deal with. So one point that you made in your preamble, uh, you asked him twice if he'd ever thought of opening his own business. Yeah. I did for a reason. Um, I, don't know if, I don't know if that's an instinct call. I'd ask him at one time and he said, oh no. And then I waited uh, about three months or so. I don't remember the exact amount of time and I asked him a second time. And then he said, well, you know, I had, but I had some guys that uh, we were gonna try to buy a business together and it didn't work out. And, uh, and I said, well, what do you think? And because my, my sense was in an, in an innovative business um, and anything that has any real substantive advance of the art, if I can put it that way, it is not going to happen in a partnership because you have to have a consensus of opinion and that's not the source of innovation. Did he have a particular thing that was individualistic and right away in what he did? I mean, actually, not even right away, before the doors were even open. I mean, an idea. 
Not really. That was apparent. In fact, that it started with his my the second time I asked, he said yes, and he said well, and then said I would like to consider buying a business. Would you talk with us and so foundries? And I talked to, I think it was only two, to see if they were for sale. And uh, one of them was definitely not for sale, although he probably should have been. And the other one for, was for sale, but and we went and sat down with them, visited, looked at their numbers, and and um, it even though they would offer seller financing at six percent, that wasn't the critical issue. The, the matter is the price you pay and then what you pick up in the process. You're buying what somebody else bought, built, and custom fit is man. It's it's my conviction that was then, and it's more so now. If it's not fit to you, don't bother. I mean, it's the joke about the guy whose suit doesn't fit. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, so, but, so the the individualistic aspect of what he was doing was going to come about through him, because he built it from the ground up. Yeah. It, or, it, organically, rather. Yeah. It, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I, I don't think that he had a sense of his own capabilities. I've learned over the years that that's not something I push with guys. When I've been able to identify the particular uh, thing that they've brought to their industry or to their business, they don't like it when I tell them. They don't like being discovered, odd as that may seem. Maybe it's maybe there's a bit of being pinned down in that <laughs> discovery. There's one argument that I think does apply, and it applied in Bill's case specifically, but I've seen it a number of times. A lot of these guys grew up as misfits, so they suffered a certain amount of youthful harassment and disparagement, and it affects their personality. And all kids receive some abuse, but these guys receive more than their share, I guess. And so they're, they get a little bit, they get a little bit sensitive. I think the curious point, maybe what I'm thinking about, and I don't mean to derail the line you're on, but that's what we're doing. Uh, we it, make the, this part of the presentation, oh, well, the kind of this back and forth. Well, that's, this, that's, yeah, that's yeah. what this is. So I, I, one of the things I, from a, I agree that they're on a, on a root level, inventiveness, creativity, personal voice, whatever you want to call it, is the same. The outcome in music is obviously different than the outcome in a foundry, but that's later down the line. And what I think is interesting to me from a, the musical corollary would be you don't sit down to play and say, well, i got to sit down here and, and I've got this original idea, so I'll start playing. You become original through the work. So it seems that the thing that made his business singular, or better word would be personal, it just happened through the work. Could be, typically, but I don't recall that, that was anything that he addressed, uh, but I've seen it addressed a number of times over the decades. Um, my, these these my, guys take a look at the industry and they see, they have they have an un, and almost always is an unspoken criticism of the way things are done, which implies then an opening for something being done well. 
and they react to that. In other words, I think this is the right way to do it, but the other side is to say the way it's commonly done is in fact the wrong way. And some of uh, people have argued that the reason that they start their businesses is they try to introduce their ideas and the companies they're with, those ideas are discarded. Mm -hmm. And um, so they quit in disgust. In fact, oftentimes are even fired for trying to implement them. Was he, uh, what, what did the client makeup look like right away? Just curious as to, was he small jobs? Did he have large, you, you started to mention this large client, largest job, li largest client in fact. But was he kind of a job shop? At, well, that would be the classic definition. He's a job shop. Um, put in the vernacular as they used to put it, they say we, we make parts. So they made parts that were part of some larger assembly. For example, they made parts for, I think it was IBM disk drives. Well, they didn't make IBM disk drives. They made a particular part. Um, and, uh, and, and I, were they large? Uh, rarely, I mean, they did for companies like uh, John Deere, which is a large company, but it might be just a small part of a particular product. Um, so, I suppose that at a million dollars in sales, if they had one job with one customer that was for 150,000, that would be an unusually large percentage. Okay. So how many people worked and started up? How many people did he employ when he started up? Oh, I don't remember exactly. I want to say um, four, five, oh. including himself. Yeah. The reason I ask is because I, I mean, the day one when he opened, it was probably nobody. Yeah. Two weeks later, there might have been four or five. You know. I, the the it's a it's a minor curiosity, but you know, 1980 is a long time ago now. Yeah. Uh, I was nine. Yeah. Nine ten years old, and I remember touring the foundry, probably sometime around 12 or 13, maybe 14, and hmm. that could be a false memory, and, and maybe it was much later. I don't know, but. The curious thing is I remember enough about the time to remember vaguely gas lines. I certainly remember the collapse of Detroit, the collapse of steel, and all the things that were around there. And here's this shop in <coughs> northern suburb of Minneapolis. I don't name nothing. No, I mean, and this is still nowhere, and it was really nowhere. But, but, but catch this. Um, the People that bought from him in the early stages knew full well that the old bit, it's a startup company, high risk, you know, da, da, da. That same thing is true, was true for the lender. Yeah. So the determination was based on an assessment of the person. Mm -hmm. So they looked at Bill, or the lender looked at Bill, the new customer looked at Bill and was willing to say, this is a good guy, we need him in this business or he'll be able to deliver. That, that, that. We'll work it through. And that was not strictly a business consideration. That was a character assessment. That issue of character comes up again later in the story of his. This story covers 30 years. Yeah. Basically, his whole career as an owner. Yeah. Not basically. In fact, his whole career. Yeah, his whole career. Well, I remember, you know, I remember his personality. I mean, he was funny. At he times. could be. He could be. He was difficult. Typically. Typically. 
uh, and actually all the, as it happens, all my uncles and you, my dad, <laughs> are not the easiest at first blush. And where I'm going with this is, is clearly people bought from him on, the, on his character, the force of his personality, the clarity of, I remember he could speak very clearly when, when he needed to. And I, I asked him a few times about his work. And he was dismissive, as you'd expect. I don't do anything. I don't know what I... Yeah, all this cute. other stuff. Yeah, that's... And then he would proceed to explain something fairly profound about what he was doing. And I don't remember them that well. I remember being influenced by them. And, and my your dad, my grandpa, was similar. If you could corner him enough... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the fists would come up a little bit verbally, and you could get an answer. And I think that's well. It, they, they, they tend not to like to admit to excellence. Yeah. Okay. And 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 I, I can theorize as to why that's true. I think I don't think it's a type of humility. I I think um, it's almost the reverse of that. Having been a misfit, not belonging, if you will, then suddenly finding on some level they belong, it's it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number of clients that were difficult people that we had was quite a good list. They were some difficult people, but there are reasons they're that way. And part of how this story with Bill finishes up on pricing is that uh, eventually people get defining him to be difficult and in his ways odd and they're highly critical of them and he's not a professional and yada yada and it gets to him and it makes him meaner. Mm -hmm. Well the through line that I'm kind of teasing out now and I'm going to talk to people other people as part of this podcast is the part that interests me is it's really three part um first part is you practice something. I mean, you have to have a knowledge, however you come to get that knowledge. The, the second part, and this is maybe the, the biggest part, is improvisation. Because I remember, well, talking to you, you've always been an improviser. Bill had that capacity. Later on, I remember it didn't seem to be there as much. But in fact, the whole family, because we all talked and told stories and and bickered and all the rest, there was a tremendous improvisation element to it. And then the final thing, and I, I, the reason I'm doing this is improvisation is seen as off the cuff. And improvisation really is, <clears throat> the point of it is to be as accurate, to be more accurate then well I'm uncomfortable with the word improvisation because it does imply that it's off the cuff and I want to tell you these guys are not off the cuff but improvisation isn't off the cuff it's the highest no, form oh, yeah. highest form of communication mastery or any mastery when these guys see something it's identified as a problem they almost instinctively drawing from a reservoir of, of knowledge know what to do to fix it mm-hmm 
in spite of what anybody else says. And that's the secret of the first story about this large, large for them customer. Do we seek a price increase or would he fix what we're doing? And um, Bill was un, uncommonly averse to risk. So he, more likely than not, felt that if they raised the price, they would lose the customer. Moreover, he didn't believe that was necessary. Yeah, fact and reality as, or math, reality and math as the CFO would see things is a start hard things to overcome unless you're the boss and you can say get lost. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's, just, that's what I mean by improvisation. Yeah. The point of it is accuracy. Yeah. The yeah. point of it is mastery. <laughs> because it, the point of it is to meet the conditions with a higher level response than academic or common practice would allow. Mm -hmm. And that's the part that interests me about it. And maybe that's my own axe to grind. Cause I, 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 I don't know that it's, uh, that it's uh, inspirational as much as it is problem-driven. I don't know the difference. Well, I don't know. I'm just saying that you know, I don't see these guys, any of them ever sitting down and say, well, how can, how can we come up with something new and different? I've met people who think that way. They don't hardly ever come up with anything. Well, I don't know about that. I had Not that I've noticed. But what moves them is they're facing a specific problem. And, and, and they come up with a way to deal with it. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. The, I chose Bill because he's the only, well, one of two. I think two that I... Um, that I, that I advised for their whole career. Dan Hughes being the second one, and that was only because he died young. Well, 65. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I can just back up a little bit to, he goes through, what, a year-long process of planning? Yeah. On this, this thing. Yeah, he did. Researching, presenting, and all this stuff goes into this guy, Stan Gove, who was, what, SBA? It was with uh, the largest, one of the two large banks in Minneapolis. Okay. Guys really impressed with them. Uh, obviously, that's that's expertise, that's a knowledge, true knowledge driven by character and then personality as well. Something something strikes him right. They write the deal. Um, what's the atmosphere like around that for Bill? Or you? Oh boy, um, I don't remember having a particular atmosphere. First of all, um, I I was not surprised. Perhaps I should have been surprised, but I was not surprised. Uh, Stan uh, had asked me to rerun the projections. I said they're not mine. I can't rerun them. He said I got to have you rerun them. I said well I won't do it. He said drop the sales thirty percent. I want to see if it works. I said no. This is Bill's plan. I don't fool with my clients' plans. So you say this to this large... Yes. Actor, and you're, what, 38 at this time? I don't 39. know how old... Well, you're younger than Bill, right? Oh, yeah, four years. So I was... Whatever I was at that time. So uh, mid to late 30s is what... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. You say I'm not... I don't mess with... So... Uh, Stan, is, Stan is a good guy. I don't... And, and I said, all right. 
He said, all I want to do is look to see what happens if sales drop 30%. That's not conditioned on the deal. I just would like to look. I said, all right, Stan. And I kicked the sales 30%, re-ran the numbers and sent it to him. You know, um, That actually is not an unusual or an unreasonable request. What I was trying to isolate on is to Stan is, this is not my plan. This is my client's plan. He did his homework. We don't cotton to fooling with it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's whether that influences him positively, I don't know. Um, but I do know that I have to respect the work my client put into it because that year he put the work into it. Our job is like a secretary to, you know, to take notes. Yeah. Yeah. So in that year, he's putting together equipment lists, client prospects. What his expenses are, what kind of insurance he needs, how much it costs. He's scouting locations for the foundry and how to, and looking at them and how to, how to fit a foundry into the particular buildings. Yeah. Uh, he's looking for a landlord who's willing to take the risk on his business. So it so so it goes, yeah, yeah, a big year. Oh yeah, yeah. So they write the loan, and then he's got to go buy all this stuff, and he's got to. <laughs> well, bear in mind, in 1980, finding stuff was easy because everything was in trouble. Okay. Okay, it's sort of like lying around in the street, <laughs> um, you know, picking the right combinations of things required a certain amount of skill to know what to buy that works with other stuff that goes into a manufacturing facility. Uh, but he's, he's got to find it and he's, he's got to bring it in. Now, the truth is that it was fairly easy because when a price drops, and this is just an estimate that price was 20% or so, 25% of normal value, doesn't drop that low because interest rate per se makes that big differential. It's after the collapse of, or the rise of interest rates and therefore the collapse of price, then they collapse again for fear. And the fear discount is, I don't know that number, it might be 50% more. I mean, it's, it's um, you start talking about having economic savvy, a time to do something and a time not to do something. That was a time to do something. Mm-hmm. As much as everybody who had any involvement with this, and I didn't say much about it, but I knew what the reaction would be. See, this is, this is not the time. And to the extent that uh, uh, I funded all of our work, our bill, this is 1980, our bill for that work was 10 Gs. That was fairly serious money at that time. Yeah. Now, I wasn't going to get paid unless he got funding and he became, his cash flow was sufficient and then, then he paid the bill, which is several months after startup. Now you said he was, what was the word? Cum, cum, cumulative? Was that the? His, he was cumulative, his, he was, his cumulative results after six months were profitable. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Okay. So he had losses and then they... Profits came in, and the cumulative after total up after six months was 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 a profit. That's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. But consider the load. I mean, uh, two hundred thousand dollars or two hundred fifty thousand dollars worth of equipment that has a value of 
million, maybe two million. That number of a quarter million dollars in, in equipment is hard to even understand now, where you can't buy anything for a quarter of a million dollars. Well, I'll wait till tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, right. you know, I mean, this, we'd gone through a period in the 70s of inflation, everything got up and up and up and up and up and up, and of course it was never going to get any better, it's going to continue to, continue to be good. And then, uh, you know, a gun goes off and all the birds take flight. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember just enough to know what it was like. It was funny. That 1980, uh, it was either 80 or 81 up to that point, was far and away the best year I'd ever had. And I got a call from a managing partner guy, a pretty good guy from a firm, a accounting firm, talking about how bad business was, and he was thinking about cutting people's wages and making it up with bonuses once things recover. And uh, he said, no, what are, what are you doing? And I said, oh, you know, business is bad. It's tough. I understand how tough it is. You better believe it. <laughs> and we were just coining it. <laughs> <laughs> but, the, you know, there's a certain secret to that. Uh, yeah. Well, so he's open. He's doing business. He's got clients. He's cumulative profit after six months. Yeah. In 1980, which is, if I remember the word right, stagflation was what they talked about then a lot. Was that what it was, a stag? Well, that sounds right. It's that, that, uh, somehow there's, I have a different word in mind, but I can't. If it comes to me, I'll tell you. But I, uh, I think the, the, the thing that's interesting that stands out all these years later, 40 years later, basically, uh, even a nine-year-old kid, which is what I was at that time, um, the atmosphere was you can't do anything. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's so, but that, this is one of the reasons that I decided to capture this stuff, to, to write it down because um, that's not reality. The simple fact of the matter is that that what appears to be a good time is often a terrible time to do it. What appears to be a bad time is really an ideal time to do it. Sure. It takes some homework. It takes some reasoning. To say that uh, Bill did this to his credit, I think it's great, but bear in mind, he was not a risk taker. He was risk averse. <laughs> and that's probably one of the reasons why he did such extraordinary due diligence in putting the plan together. And then testing it against those models to see, you know, well, what happens if this and that and that, 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 until he was satisfied that it was in, that it met his standards. Um, but interesting, he never did raise the question of that I recall: can we do this with twenty percent interest rate? Because everybody knew twenty percent prime rate would sink every business in the country. I mean, that was a horrendous number. Yeah, that's an unbelievable number. I said, you know, somebody said, how does that work? I said, think about this. It was 20% on 250 grand, which is 50 grand. If the value of the equipment were a million, and we looked at a company buying it, it was $2, $2 million for the equipment package. 20% on $2 million is 400 grand, which is a lot more than 50 grand. You can float 50 grand, you cannot float 400 grand 
beyond the interest expense on equipment that is the same. It's just, you know, it's not rocket surgery uh, as, 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 yeah. as a kid, you know. But, uh, you know, the, the fact of the matter is that in any industry that gets into that in, into serious trouble, and most of them were at that time, there's always, even before they're in trouble, there's always a lot of opportunity at the edges. Mm. Yeah. Not that easy to see, except for those who have sight. Yeah. And one of the things that excited me about this project was I was adamant that we were going to put a client in a, in a position to tell its own story. We would not tell the story. We would not go with him. Because, you know, one numbers guy wants to talk to another numbers guy, and that doesn't matter. Right. You know, I might be the numbers guy, but I'm not the guy. You know. Hmm. And as, as I've told clients then and since, look, I don't know anything about your business. I'm not an expert at your business. You don't want that. I, just, I know so little about your business, I won't interfere with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I think that's a... A great stopping point. Okay. And you alluded to uh, maybe the first operational crisis with this large client. Maybe we'll pick that up next time. <clears throat> well, the crisis, oh, yes. Yeah, uh, the pricing, the, whatever. The CFO issue. Yeah. That's that whole expertise thing, that whole management science thing, and it's explosive. And that also ends up to be the last story in this, last event in this man's career. Hmm. All right. Yeah. And it, because they still persist in, how do you, how do you, how do you know what talent is? I mean, isn't that an interesting question? I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's a little bit. You know, and, and, and. Big question. So you, you. I, mean, I I don't know that I knew what Bill's level of talent was. That was, if, I don't think Bill thought of it that way. I know that when he was talking about, he had talked about going into the business with some other guys to buy a business. My reaction, I didn't, I don't remember that I gave it to him at the time because of those that were dead, there's no way. I know that in getting it later on, and during that year and getting it funded, he knew a guy who wanted to fund it who had the money. And I went with him to that meeting because you're looking for funding. Yeah, there's no certainty, sort of. <laughs> but uh, we sat in the meeting. And said, "Well, what this is going to mean is let's see what this means. Bill's going to be minority shareholder. You'll put up the money. Maybe that's what you're thinking." I said, "You know, frankly, I don't have a problem." with my brother, with Bill being minority shareholder. I'll write the, the, the covenants for the, that position. <laughs> because it's slavery. On the other side, if you don't have them under control, then you're at much greater risk. Yeah. I said, he said, well, everybody knows me and you know what a good guy I am. And I, I said, you know, um, I, I don't really doubt that you're a wonderful guy. 
that really offended him, I guess. That is not quite the word. I don't remember the word I used just now, but you know, it, it, uh, <laughs> there are people around who want to put up money to take the, take the credit for the success. Okay. And they want to own the guy. I mean, when Rob Cease was going to start that dealership, I thought that was great. He didn't tell me about it beforehand. He went to raise money. One guy put up all the money, and if I had been my client, I would have said, turn him down. Yeah. He cannot hold more than 10% because he cannot control the play. Well, I'm glad I let it run because I think that's a, that's a great spot to stop right there. Okay. Okay. Um.